My name is John Bourgeois and I am the RUF campus minister at Wake Forest University and it is good to be with you in the internet um, and to begin our summer series on hope. And tonight I am going to be speaking to you from Colossians 3, which Caroline read to us a few moments ago. Uh, a few years ago, some friends of mine encouraged me to watch the ASPN series, uh, the documentary series, 30 for 30. And so I binge-watched a bunch of these. And one of these that stuck out to me uh, was called Soul Man, S-O-L-E, Man, Soul Man. And it was the story of Sony Vaccaro. And Sony Vaccaro earned the nickname Kingmaker. He's been called the Forrest Gump of basketball. Basically, everything he did had incredible success. And uh, he's a fast-talking, American-born Italian, kind of like a character out of The Sopranos. And he's famous because of what he did with basketball. He was the first one to create a high school showcase for basketball players to recruit high school players to play for the college. He then got Nike connected with college teams and college basketball coaches. So he'd be the middleman to get the teams outfitted in Nike gear. And then uh, the coaches would get paid. And then he helped uh, get and keep some great coaches at small Northeastern schools in the 70s. He got Michael Jordan to sign the first shoe deal ever with Nike. And then he got Kobe Bryant to sign with Adidas. And he is the architect of our current system. And our current system works like this. You've got a brand, whether it be Nike or Adidas or someone else, and they sponsor an AAU team, which is a high school basketball team. And this team then funnels to schools that have the same sponsor. So a Nike high school team and a Nike college team. And then these college programs then funnel people to the NBA. Kids are promised, if you play for us, we will make you a millionaire. If you play with Nike, your future will be secure. Not only secure, but will be lavish. And this has become a really powerful system. It makes some men into kings, LeBron James being one of them, and it destroys countless others because it makes great promises and only delivers if the person is exceptional. And if they aren't, then they get dropped. The promise is broken, the hope is dead, and the kids are then left with nothing. The documentary interviews one, one guy who was promised so much, so much, but he was ultimately dropped by the shoe company and had nothing. And if we see, and if we look at this, what we end up seeing is we see this deep connection between hope and identity. That identity shapes hope, and hope shapes identity. For a poor kid from the inner city, the shoe deal is the golden ticket. It offers monetized hope. If you play for us, we will make you rich. We will make you rich, and we will lift your family out of poverty. If you become a Nike guy, Nike will make you rich. In other words, if you give us your identity, we will give you hope. But you don't need to grow up in the inner city to need hope. We all need hope. I don't need to tell you about your need for hope. You who have broken families and broken friendships, who have seen death, who felt anxiety and depression and sadness and loneliness, and not just you, but your neighbors and the world around us who suffers so deeply in this season and in every season. The clear message of the Christian gospel is a message of hope. And tonight we're going to look at Colossians 3, 1 through 4 to hear what that hope is. I just want to say two things tonight answer two questions from this passage. First, 
What is the Christian hope? And second, how does this hope give us a secure identity? So first, what is the Christian hope? Put simply, the Christian hope is that what happened to Jesus will happen to you because Jesus loves you. If you have faith in Christ, what happened to Jesus will happen to you because Jesus loves you. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul focuses our attention on Jesus' death and his resurrection. In verse 1, Paul says, you have been raised with Christ. Paul is saying that faith, trust in Jesus, unites you to Jesus. Through faith, you become with Jesus, in Jesus. A Christian is someone who is united to Christ by faith. And Paul is saying that what happened to Jesus has happened to you. His resurrection has become your resurrection. And everything hangs on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you're listening in tonight and you're not a Christian, first off, I'm really glad to have you here. And uh, we say this at Wake Forest, and I know that your campuses are no different. That um, We hope that RUF is a place where you can come with your doubts and your disagreements and uh, can figure out what it is that you believe for yourself. And the thing that every human has to wrestle with, the most important question that all of us have to deal with, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Was he actually bodily resurrected from the dead? Because if he wasn't, then our whole religion is a sham. But if he was, then he is who he said he is, and his resurrection has spiritual power to raise all who believe. And if you have faith in Christ, you can be certain that you've been raised with Christ. What is faith? Simply, faith is looking at Jesus' cross, looking at his death for sin, looking at him and saying, I want that to be true for me. I need that to be true for me. My friend Robert Cunningham likes to say, saving faith is not about the strength of your faith, but the strength of the object of your faith. A weak faith in a strong Savior saves. Jesus' resurrection is the linchpin of Christianity. Jesus Christ has been bodily raised from the dead. And by faith, what has happened to Jesus has happened to you. You have been raised with Christ. This means that because he is risen, you too will experience the fullness of the resurrection. Okay, what does that mean? That doesn't feel very true. I don't feel raised. What does this mean? Athanasius, who is a 4th century African bishop, explained it this way. He wrote, Before the divine visit of the Savior, before Jesus' birth and his life and his death and his resurrection, before his visit, even the holiest of men were afraid of death and mourned the dead as those who perish. But now that the Savior has raised his body, death is no longer terrible. But all those who believe in Christ trample it underfoot as nothing and prefer to die rather than to deny their faith in Christ, knowing full well that when they die, they do not perish, but live indeed and become incorruptible through the resurrection. No one in his senses doubts that a snake is dead when he sees it trampled underfoot, especially when he knows how savage it used to be. Nor if he sees boys making fun of a lion, does he doubt that the brute is either dead or completely bereft of strength. These things can be seen with our own eyes, and it is the same with the conquest of death. Doubt no longer, then, when you see death mocked and scorned by those who believe in Christ, that by Christ death was destroyed and the corruption that goes with it resolved 
and brought to an end. Here's what Athanasius is saying and what the Apostle Paul is saying in Colossians. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, death is no longer the end, but it's transformed into the gateway to heaven. The Christian hope is that what has happened to Jesus will happen to you because he loves you. Christ has been raised, and through faith, his resurrection becomes your resurrection. So how does this hope give us a secure identity? This might sound strange, but this hope gives us a secure identity because it's not only the story of resurrection, but it's the story of death. Look at verse 3. Paul says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Now, why does this give us hope? As I think back on my high school and college years, and if I'm honest, even now, um, so much of my time and energy was spent on trying to find something to hide myself in. What could I wear? or buy, or do? What cause could I be a part of to give my life purpose and meaning? Where can I hide myself to have a secure identity? We all do this. Think of all the things that we look to to tell us who we are. And these things are so fundamental to the human experience that they litter the pages of ancient mythology. Mythologists have a term for this. They call it a life token. And a life token is this external object that someone binds their life to. And this token then is referred to the per- as the person's life. And as long as that token is intact, nothing can happen to the person. Think about Lord Voldemort and Harry Potter. The Horcruxes are these life tokens. And as long as they are intact, nothing can harm him. Life tokens are objects that we hide ourselves in. We hide our lives in. And if the life token is secure, then we're safe. And friends, our life tokens are so obvious. Think of the story of Sony Vaccaro. Think about the Nike shoe deal. I mean, LeBron James's life token is terribly obvious. It's Nike. As long as his Nike deal is intact, nothing can hurt him. So he has a swoosh on everything he owns. And friends, ours are just as obvious. Think about the clothes that you online shop for during class and the symbols and brands that you want on your chest and on your shoes. What identity do those logos promise? What is the hope that's connected to that identity? And it's not just in what we wear. What are the organizations that you belong to or you long to belong to? What identity do they promise to you? And what hope is connected to that identity? When I was in college, this had a powerful pull in me. I remember shopping for clothing, looking for the perfect logo. I was obsessed with finding the perfect brand to have on my chest. And when I found I found it, and I saved with the money, and I bought that thing, it didn't do it. I never found it. I was searching for something to give me an identity, something I could put my hope in that would make me feel secure, a logo, a life token, something I could hide myself in that was secure and could give me a secure identity. And perhaps even more embarrassing than that, I remember daydreaming about what life would look like if I was at a different school and in a different fraternity, As a sophomore at Tulane, the hope and identity that my fraternity had promised to me hadn't lived up to its promises. So I remember daydreaming about other schools and daydreaming about other fraternities at other schools. If I had gone to school there and joined that fraternity over there, then my life would be secure. My hope would be secure. My identity would be secure. And then a funny thing happened. The fall of my senior year, the fall of 2005, 
Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans and Tulane shut its doors. And like the rest of the school, we went our separate ways. I ended up home in Virginia and enrolled at UVA. And that first weekend there, the first weekend of the fall, I tried on my daydream. And I remember waking up that first Sunday morning in a frat house on a pleather couch that stunk of cheap beer. And it was just as empty. It's insecure. It didn't deliver what it promised. So what do you daydream about giving? What do you daydream about being able to give you the security that you long for? Where are you trying to hide yourself in order to have life? Here's the thing. We all do this. We all construct these identities through our apparel and our appearance and our affiliations, through our achievement and our academics, with the hope that they will offer some real hope and be a safe place to hide ourselves. But the identities that we self-construct ultimately fail because they're ultimately nothing. Because everything from this earth is made of dust, and to dust it will return. Therefore, the identities we construct are dust too. They're vapor. They're nothing. That's why they don't have any real power to give you security or hope. That's why when you keep trying to find that perfect image or join the perfect group, it cannot give you the identity that you crave because it's actually nothing. And the only way to be freed from the treadmill of inconsequential meaningless, meaninglessness is to die. You have to die to these competing identities and find yourself hidden in Christ. Over and over again, God gives us language in the Bible to help us make sense of this. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve first sin and their eyes are opened and they experience shame and guilt and they discover that they're naked in their shame, they go to hide themselves. But God responds by killing the first animal and covering them in the animal skins to, to cover them and hide them. And as God reveals himself to his people again and again, he tells them that he's a shelter, that he's a hiding place, that he is a refuge. He gives them this language to make sense of their relation to him as hiding inside of him. And the Psalms are filled with this language. He's a rock to hide under. He is a refuge from the storm. He is a mother bird's wings for us who are the chicks to crawl up under and cuddle in and hide until the storm passes. Hide me, hide me, hide me. This is the cry of our hearts. And God answers by giving us himself. Not just as a temporary shelter from the storm, but as the only one who can deliver us from sin and suffering and carry us to himself in love. Friends, Jesus Christ is the true life token. He is in heaven. And when you are hidden in him, your life, eternal life is secure. And all things must work together for your salvation. This is what God has done for you in Jesus. The Christian gospel is not that you were drowning and then God threw you a life preserver and you got to grab onto it and then he pulls you in. No, the Christian gospel is that you are drowning in the sea and Jesus Christ swam out to you and wrapped his arms around you and pulled you to the bottom and there you die together. And then three days later, you raise together. And then you hop on his back and you ride him like a surfboard to the shore. This is verse 3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. 
when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. You don't need to worry about finding the right life token to hide yourself in because Christ has opened his wounds for you to hide in. And he has hidden you in himself. He is the shelter. He is the refuge that you long for. Back to Sonny Vicaro. This man created an empire by conceptualizing and implementing the ideas of giving players shoe deals. He has made Nike and Adidas billions of dollars. And the systems that he helped create has put thousands of youth into programs that treat them like commodities, monetize pawns in the commercialized world of basketball, a system that makes kings of a few and strips many of dignity by reducing their value to whether or not they can sell shoes and discarding those who are deemed economically worthless. And today, Sonny is sickened by what he helped create, and he's cut ties with the shoe companies and is working hard to care for and serve the players who are being used and abused by the system. In closing, I want to use this story to illustrate our passage. Sonny saw what putting his identity and power and money did to people downstream from him, how it destroyed them, how when his hope was wrapped up in that money and power, what it did to people at the bottom. I want you to think about the hope that he was offering those young men. It was a false hope. He got rich, and in doing so, he shipwrecked so many lives. So many young men staked their futures on a shoe deal they were promised. They were promised that it would come through for them. And then they were let down and thrown out. Whatever you stake your hope in will affect those around you. Whatever you hide yourself in will spill out over into the lives of those who you were called to love and serve. Put your hope in something false, something temporary, whether it be money and power like Sonny Vaccaro or the petty things around us that we play with every day. That false hope will overflow and will crush those whom you love and whom you are called to serve. But if you put your hope in the one who died for you and is raised for you, then the ones you love will receive from you a living hope that does not disappoint. Friends, Jesus does not offer you a false hope. The Christian hope is that what has happened to Jesus will happen to you because he loves you. In John 17, Jesus is with his disciples before he goes to the cross, and he's praying for them. And in verse 24, he prays, Father, I desire that they also, those whom you've given to me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me before the foundation of the world. Do you hear that? He's praying Colossians 3. I desire that they may be with me where I am, where I am to see my glory. And here's what I love about this. You can read Colossians 3 in a certain way that makes it sound transactional. Died with Christ, raised with Christ, he died for you, you live with him. But friends, this is not transactional. The Christian hope is that Jesus died for you because he longs to be with you. He longs for you to be with him. He has deep affection for you. He desires to be with you. So he came to get you, to hide you in himself, so that he might enjoy you for eternity. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you that you give us a real hope. Hope that what has happened to Jesus will happen to us because you love us. Lord, I pray for my friends, those who joined us tonight. Lord, I pray that you would speak deep to them in their souls and that, um, Lord, give them faith that they might hide themselves in you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.